everyone. Welcome to Dig Deep. Well, today we are concluding our series entitled Enough. And this concept of enough, of course, is really very simple. I am a notoriously unprepared baker. I've told you this before, but I do not bake very often. And when I do, it's usually just a box mix of some kind. But even with the simplest recipes, like a mix that requires that you add oil, water, and eggs, I have ended up in the situation an embarrassing number of times where I've looked at my husband and said, oh man, I don't have enough eggs. It's usually when I'm making my kid's birthday cake the evening before the party, and so of course one of us has to run to the store to get more of whatever I'm lacking. And that's it. That's what it means to not have enough. We take an inventory of what we have, and then we measure it against what we need. And so when you're making a cake and you don't have enough eggs, that's it. You need to run to the store. You simply don't have enough of what you need. But the problem is we do this measuring and comparing without thinking about it in pretty much every area of our lives. But instead of taking an inventory of what we have and then measuring it against what we need, we take an inventory of what we have and then we measure it against what we think we need. And we do this with our money and our time and our possessions. We compare what we actually have to some ideal that we've created in our minds. We compare it to what we think we need. And of course, we come up short every time. And then all we can think about, all we can focus on is the gap in between the two. If you've been listening to this series, I'm sure you've noticed the trend that there simply is not a magic amount of money or time or possessions that will ever feel like enough. And so our time is better spent taking our eyes off of the gap between what we have and what we wish we had and looking at what we actually have and considering how we should use it. That reframing of our thinking toward what we actually have and practicing gratitude is our only hope of experiencing the contentment of enough. Now today, the stakes are a little bit higher because today we are not talking about money or time or stuff, while those are very important. Today we're talking about you and we're talking about me. What do we do when the gap that we can't take our eyes off of is the gap between who we are and who we wish we were. What do we do when we're haunted by the question, am I enough? And so as we jump into this topic, I want to say up front that it is very important that we clarify what we mean when we ask, am I enough? Because I think there's a lot of things that that question can mean. But for today, I want to break it into two main questions that I believe we are really asking that are below the surface of the question, am I enough? For many of us, when we ask, am I enough? What we are really asking is, do I have what it takes? We have some challenge placed in front of us and we take a quick inventory of our strengths and our weaknesses and we ask, do I really have what it takes? This is what we feel when we're asked to lead a small group or run a meeting, but we've always felt overwhelmed by the thought of speaking in front of people. Or it's when you're about to get married and your body image insecurities rise to the surface of your heart and you fear that you won't be enough for your spouse in the bedroom. This is when you move to a new job or a new city and you are totally overwhelmed at the thought of making new friends because you don't feel like you're funny enough or educated enough to impress and befriend the people that you want to be friends with. 
for most of us, we've experienced that feeling of not enoughness at some point or another. And for some of you, that describes how you feel practically every morning before your feet touch the floor. I am not blank enough, smart enough, pretty enough, talented enough, confident enough. I don't have the skills or the talents or the background that I wish I had. And we ask, do I have what it takes? And so we're going to start our time by answering that question, am I enough through the lens of do I have what it takes? But there is another form of this question of am I enough that I believe runs deeper and darker inside of our souls. And it's really important for us to see the difference between the two, because I believe inside of all of us, there is an ache and a longing for love and acceptance. And so when we ask, am I enough? What we're really asking is, am I worthy of love? And so we're going to close our time together today by answering that much deeper question through the truth of God's word. But first, we're going to talk about when I ask the question, am I enough? And what I'm really asking is, do I have what it takes? And so as we consider that question, we are going to look at an interaction that Moses has with God, starting in Exodus chapter 2. Now Moses was born in ancient Egypt during a time of slavery and oppression of the Israelites. And the Hebrews, or the Israelites, had become so numerous in Egypt that Pharaoh had ordered that all newborn boys be thrown into the Nile. Well, Moses' mother refused to do that, and so she hid him until she couldn't hide him any longer. When he was about three months old, she placed him in a basket in the reeds of the Nile River, and Moses' sister stayed behind to watch what would happen to him. Later on that day, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river to bathe, and she came across the basket. And when she saw the baby crying, she felt sorry for him, and she said, oh, this is one of those Hebrew boy babies. Then Moses' sister very strategically steps forward from her hiding place and asks, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, go do that. That sounds great. So Moses' sister goes and gets their mother, who then was able to nurse Moses until he was weaned and then returned him to the palace where he grew up raised by Pharaoh's daughter. So then we fast forward and Moses is an adult and he sees the oppression of his people. And one day he's out and about and he gets into an argument with an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. And the text said he looked around and when he saw that no one was looking, he murdered the Egyptian and buried his body in the sand. The next day, Moses is out and about and again and he sees two Hebrew men fighting with each other and he asks them, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the one man replies, Who made you judge over us, Moses? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And in that moment, Moses is terrified because he realizes that his dark secret is actually no secret at all. And so he flees as a fugitive. He runs away from Egypt. He ends up in a land called Midian where he just lays low. He meets his wife. They get married. They have a few sons. And he becomes a shepherd and tries to have a simple life off of the grid. So that's the background of Moses. And then one day he is out tending this flock of sheep in Midian. And in Exodus chapter three, starting in verse two, we read about this interaction that he has with God. It says there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, here I am. And God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been afraid to look at God? I know I have, and I can imagine why Moses might feel that way. Moses had committed murder. He had been living in hiding. He's trying to get a fresh start, hoping to leave his past in the past. And now God is calling him by name out of a bush saying, Moses, yeah, I know who you are. And here's who I am. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses is standing there hiding his face. And God goes on in verse seven. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God goes on to say that the cry of the Israelites has reached him. He says, I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And in verse 11, Moses finally responds and he says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So I want to do something with this passage that we did earlier in this series. I want to reread just that last portion of this interaction. And I want you to listen for the number of times that God uses the word I or me, referring to himself, and compare it to the number of times that God says you, referring to Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 9, the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And when we look at this interaction through that lens, we realize, man, Moses is like a footnote at best in this plan. God is saying, here's who I am. I have seen these things. I have heard these things. I am about to do these things. Oh, and side note, I'm going to send you to do it, Moses. And even though Moses is such a small part of what God is saying, Moses' reaction is completely centered on himself. And isn't that so typical of all of us? I mean, you've done this. I know I've done this. It's like when we see that we've been tagged in a group photo on social media. What do you do? You immediately start frantically scanning the whole picture to find yourself. That's right. I mean, sure, it might be a picture of someone's wedding day, but who cares what the bride and groom look like? I want to find myself in the picture first. And for many of us, that's how we approach God. That's how we approach his word. We read a whole passage like this where God is teaching us about who he is and what he's done and what he's about to do. And we just wait for that directive, that sentence that finally has our name in it, where God says, okay, now you go and do this. 
And then that's all we take away from that passage. And God is saying to Moses and to us, you're missing it. This is not just about you. This is primarily about me. And God is saying to Moses, I have a task for you. And Moses' gut reaction is to ask, do I have what it takes? And you can hear this in his response in verse 11, where he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? But God responds to him like this in verse 12. He says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. See, God is putting Moses in his place here. He's saying, okay, Moses, it's time to stop thinking about yourself and listen. I am the one who's going to do this. I will be with you. And when it's all over and done with, you will worship me. But it doesn't seem to sink in because Moses pushes back again. In verse 13, he says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God goes on and he gives Moses some specific instructions. He needs to go to the elders of Israel first, and then he needs to go to Pharaoh with the elders' approval. And after he gives him all these instructions, Moses replies in verse 1 of chapter 4, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. I love that. I love that it becomes a snake and he runs from it. I've seen this scene depicted in movies and I don't think I've ever seen an actor playing Moses actually run from the snake. This makes Moses so human. I mean, who of us wouldn't run from a snake if God suddenly made one appear in front of us? Um, Of course we would. God shows him another miracle. He says, Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. And when he takes it out, his hand has leprosy. It's snow white. And so he says, put it back in your cloak. And when he puts it back in and takes it out, it's healed. He shows him these signs and wonders. And then in verse 10, Moses responds again by saying, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And here it is. Now we are getting to the core of things. Now we get some perspective on why Moses is pushing back so hard. Why even in light of these miracles of God speaking to him out of a bush that seems to be on fire but isn't really and who has turned a staff into a snake and made his hand leprous and then not, why would Moses push back so hard? This is at the core of things. Moses sees an inadequacy in himself that is holding him back. When we feel like we don't have what it takes, we might just say things like, oh, I just can't do it. But there's really deep insecurities below the surface, weaknesses that we have tried our best to hide from other people. We try to stay out of situations where those weaknesses might be exposed. And so behind this feeling of do I have what it takes There are some specific insecurities that you are going to have to deal with. Moses is bringing his right out into the open here. He says, look, 
I'm not a good communicator, and you are asking me to stand before all of the elders of Israel and then stand in front of the most powerful king in the known world and tell him to let his entire slave workforce go free and then lead all the Israelites into a new country? I'm telling you, God, I am not the guy. And maybe for you, it's not public speaking. Maybe you feel like you're not smart enough or you're not a leader or you don't have enough education or enough confidence or enough faith. For Moses, he eventually brings up that he's slow of speech and tongue. And God responds in verse 11 of chapter 4 by saying, Who gave human beings their mouths? He says, Is it not I, the Lord? And then in verse 12, Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And then Moses, Oh, Moses, He pushes back again in verse 13, and he says, please send someone else. Have you ever uttered those words, either out loud or in your heart? Please, please just send someone else. I don't have what it takes. Please choose someone who does. And in verse 14, we read that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Why? It seems so reasonable that Moses would say, it sounds like you're looking for a public speaker, God. That's not me. I've never been great with communication. But I believe God is angry because Moses just wasn't getting it. Again and again, God was pointing Moses to his own power, to God's power, to his character. And yet Moses keeps making it about himself. Finally, God, in frustration, concedes and says, fine, how about I have your brother Aaron help you? And they come to an agreement, and Moses starts making arrangements to leave for Egypt. And have you ever considered that when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt, he performed miracles and he sent plagues And yet, as far as we can tell from the text, he chose to leave Moses with his speech impediment. And I believe that decision on God's part points to the truth that the Apostle Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, where he writes, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So listen, if you feel incapable of doing something that God has placed in front of you because of some limitation you feel, then The good news is you are the exact type of person that God chooses to use. This isn't just an isolated incident with Moses. The Apostle Paul, who wrote those words that we just read in 2 Corinthians, he wrote those right after telling us that he had a thorn in his flesh, something broken in nature that tormented him, something he asked God to take away that God said, no, I'm going to leave that in place in your life. 
Queen Esther, we think of as beautiful and courageous, but she felt almost completely paralyzed by fear, so much so that she asked Israel to fast and pray for supernatural strength and courage for her so that she could do what she needed to do. King David was just a boy from a backwater town who had a couple rocks and a slingshot. He had no sword and no armor when he went into battle against Goliath. Gideon was a coward who was hiding from the enemy when God called him to be a warrior. When Gideon finally agrees after several tests of faith, he assembles an army of 32,000 soldiers and God tells him to send away literally 99.9% of them, leaving Gideon with just 300 soldiers. Gideon obeys and he wins the battle. And maybe this is why when Jesus chose his disciples, he chose a hodgepodge group of people from non-glamorous, uneducated, and even scandalous backgrounds. So if when you ask the question, am I enough, you're asking, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to be successful in this job, in this marriage, in this volunteer role? Do I have what it takes to get through this challenge that is looming over me? The answer is... By the world's standards, probably not. You are not perfect. We all have weaknesses and old wounds and scars and physical and emotional pain that hold us back. And that's a bummer. That's uncomfortable. But even though it's uncomfortable, do not run from those moments. Let that sit for a minute. Don't be so quick to talk yourself out of it or excuse it or numb it or run away from it. Be willing to sit in your weaknesses, acknowledge them, and then turn to the God who is able to turn weakness into strength by his power. So if when you ask, am I enough, you are really struggling with the question, do I have what it takes? I want to encourage you to get alone with God and write down a couple things. First, I want you to write down this sentence. God, I don't feel like I have enough blank to blank. And then once you have filled in those blanks, I want you to ask God to show you just the next step that he wants you to take. And then ask him through prayer to provide the strength for you to take that step, just the next step. The Apostle Paul, King David, Queen Esther, Gideon, the disciples, they didn't have it all figured out. They followed one step at a time. They made mistakes along the way. They knew their weaknesses all too well, and it was those weaknesses that forced them to rely on God's strength one small step at a time. But for many of us, the question, am I enough, really stems from that deeper place in our souls that asks, am I worthy of love? Am I valuable? Am I worthwhile? Am I worthy? Because there are days when, honestly, I annoy even myself. I'm just kind of sick of myself, and I get the sense that other people aren't that thrilled to be around me either, and I can quickly sink into the depths of this question, am I enough? Am I worthy of love? Author Philip Yancey puts it this way in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He says, we grow up hungry for love, and in ways so deep as to remain unexpressed, we long for our maker to love us. 
Just this past week, doing the bedtime routine with my seven-year-old son, Elijah, I asked him, as I try to do at bedtime, how his day has been, especially if it's been a busy afternoon and we hadn't had a chance to catch up. I said, how was your day, buddy? And he said, I, I had a bad day today. And I said, oh, I didn't realize you had a bad day. Why'd you have a bad day? He said, I did a bad thing. And I said, well, buddy, you can tell me anything. What did you do? And then he took his little hands and pressed them over his face and said through the muffling, I'm afraid to tell you because I'm afraid you won't love me anymore. Now at this point, as a mom, my heart is beating a little bit faster thinking, oh my goodness, what did my first grader do that he would be so ashamed that he would even entertain the idea that I wouldn't love him anymore if I knew his crime? And so for the next several minutes, I kept gently asking him what had happened and reassuring him that he could tell me absolutely anything. And finally, with his hands still pressed against his little face, he confessed that while his class was cleaning up their music classroom, he was acting a little crazy and he accidentally threw a toy and it hit his music teacher in the face. Now, he felt terrible about this, but I felt a huge wave of relief at the size of the crime. But I took that opportunity to tell him that I forgave him. And we talked about how he could be more careful next time. But I told him that there isn't anything he could do to ever lose my love. He finally removed his little hands from his face to reveal tears on his cheeks, but a little smile of relief on his face. See, he's my son. The love I have for him was not earned by something great he did, and there's no way he could lose it by any mistake he could ever make. The love I have for him is rooted deep in my soul. And Philip Yancey says it so well when he says, God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. So the answer is, Yes, you are worthy of love, but it has absolutely nothing to do with you. Not your successes, not your failures, not whether you're really confident or really, really insecure. You are loved by the God who created you because of who he is. So if you find yourself asking the question, am I worthy of love? The answer is yes. And that yes is given to us in the form of what we refer to as the gospel. Isaiah 54.10 describes God's love. It says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The Hebrew word translated as love here is hesed, which is a beautiful and complex word in the Hebrew language, and it means a loving kindness. It's not just a feeling. It's an action. It's a decision. It's a loving kindness. Author Lois Tuverberg says it like this. She said, this is a love that intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. That is the kind of love that God extends to you and to me. And he loves you so much that despite your mistakes, he sent his son to die for you, to take your punishment and my punishment, to die the death that we deserved, and then to defeat death, raise back to life, and offer us that life for all of eternity in relationship with God the Father. That is 
the good news of the gospel. He is perfect. He is strong and he sees us. He sees you striving for love and acceptance and craving a feeling of worthiness and enoughness. And I believe he wants to remind you today that you will never find that on your own. So whether you are in a weak and vulnerable place in life right now where you feel like you're failing and the world feels against you, or whether you're totally on top of the world right now, feeling great and feeling confident about a recent accomplishment, he is gently reminding you today that the only thing that will truly address that ache within you is his love. His love for you is enough. And so if you're listening today and you have never received that gift of God's love, you've never received the grace that he extended to you when he sent Jesus, his son, to die for you and then to defeat death, to offer you life for all of eternity, I want to encourage you to investigate what that means to accept that grace. And so you can do that by attending a local church in your area this weekend and asking some questions. But I want to invite you to, if you want to just email me directly, you can go to jessalston.com and use the contact page, and I will try to get you connected with a local church in your area and answer questions that you may have or connect you to resources that will be helpful to you. And for all of us today, I hope that we're able to acknowledge that there is some part of us that longs for a love like that. And there is a temptation for us to have that longing fulfilled somewhere else by the world. And I want to encourage you to take that longing inside of yourself and bring it before God because he is the only one who will ever truly be enough. And he loves you. And so I'm excited to tell you that our next series for the podcast is all about the different, beautiful, intricate facets of God's love as seen in the life of his son, Jesus. And so if you struggle to feel like God truly loves you or you struggle with this question, am I worthy of love? I hope you'll tune in for this next series to get a deeper understanding of just how deep and profound and beautiful God's love for you really is. So I hope you'll come back and join us for the next series. Until then, remember to dig deep. 